Hello and welcome to the Comedian's Paradise. Now, this is the podcast where we speak to amazing, interesting and people with many layers of depth like Russian dolls that will inspire comedians like you and me to live this comedy journey on our own terms. Now, this man, he's told me to call him Tim Hill because he is a secret agent in the Dutch comedy scene. He is a man who... He's a man who has a love of languages. He's a man who, if you want to know about Amsterdam or any part of Holland, he is a dictionary and knows everything. He is a man who can speak many languages. He is a man who produces comedy shows. Is there anything this man can, can't do? No, there isn't. He, he, he is a very interesting character who you're going to love like a fantastic bowl of spaghetti bolognese. And he's come all the way from Holland to be on this podcast. Please welcome Tim Hill. I, I feel like there should be an applause here now. Do you put that in in post? Oh, there it is. <laughs> is that enough? <laughs> That's great, man. Thanks for do you, Martin, do you, did you work for Headspace at any point by any chance? Because your voice is making me want to meditate. What is Headspace? Oh, it's this app that helps you meditate, basically. It's all about mindfulness and stuff. Oh, do you think I could ask them and see if they would put me on? <laughs> they, have, they have someone who sounds an amazing lot like you. Oh, God, maybe it's a voice relation. I th- that would be cool, man. <laughs> <laughs> oh, if I cough every now and then, I've had this cough for the last three weeks, so. Okay, fair enough. I've been tested. Are you sure? Yeah. So... The thing is, right, do you get this as well? Like, so be, I, I get told that I look like Elon Musk or that guy that played Freddie Mercury in Queen. Do, do you believe that? Rami Malek, I can kind of see that. Yeah, yeah. You could do worse. That's not bad. That's not a bad one. And you yourself, do you get that? I mean, you probably hear a lot of comics do this is who I look like, whatever joke. Do you, do you get that? Like people say that you look like a celebrity or someone they know? I, I get a number of them, yes. I, uh, I, I've actually recently switched glasses and that's made, uh, <laughs> that's, that's actually gotten rid of a, a, a fair chunk of my opener. Because uh, I have these very, very round glasses. And then uh, just for the listener, I, uh, I have very, very blonde hair and I have a beard. I have no mustache. I look a little hipstery. Um, so the thing I always went for was, uh, I look like if John Lennon was Amish, uh, which doesn't really work without the round frame glasses anymore. And the other <laughs> one was, uh, what would happen if Harry Potter and Draco Malfoy had a baby, if that baby was raised by Abraham Lincoln. Oh, so that's, a good that's probably <laughs> the last time I'm telling those jokes. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So guys, that's, that's a special award for you guys to listen to. There you go. Yeah. It's and so you've got like quite a big backstory. I mean, when I asked like things that are surprising about you, people say you have a love of languages. You've been to Thailand. You like you said that you're on radio, or you 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 let. I mean, you're a tour guide. So there's so much to unpack there. But let's start off with like you say that you have a love of languages and like. How did you become like a, a comedian? Ooh, um, well, those are two separate questions, really. Uh, ah, well, are they? So um, the love of languages specifically is a love of, of the English language, which although I'm very interested in other languages as well, but I'm only really fluent in Dutch and English. Um, and that really just came from a, a, a massive obsession with pop culture growing up. I, I grew up in, in kind of a you know, fairly, fairly sheltered, conservative little religious town. So there wasn't really that much going on necessarily. So I just watched so much TV. And um, yeah, everyone on TV that seemed to be, you know, fighting monsters and blowing up spaceships and stuff, they all seemed to sound like this. Um, so it's, it's, it's what I, I guess, subconsciously aspired to. Um, and then, yeah, from the English came a lot of the jobs that I, that I went on doing. I, uh, worked at the Amsterdam dungeon, which is like the, the London dungeon, but in Amsterdam. 
I was a tour guide for years and years. So I, 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 for the last, uh, I want to say 10, 12 years, I've really sought out jobs specifically uh, where, where I speak English. Ah, okay, okay. And is that also so to, to sell? Now, this must, must annoy you being from like Holland. You must get the real stereotypes that like you've heard it all before. You know what I'm going to say. And I, I thought you really... were just going to say it must annoy you to be from the Netherlands because sometimes a little bit like part of me definitely wants to be an American. Um, but the stereotypes. Yeah. OK, let, lay some on me. Let's let's see. Let's see how. We oh, do. God. <laughs> You're putting me... no, but... So for people that have been to the red light districts and they talk about weed and all of that and like mm -hmm. that, that must be a bit. Does it? I mean, do you get a lot of comics when they come into your clubs, like the, the stereotypical joke on like weed and sex? Does that annoy yeah. you? Yeah. Well, I mean, we so um, the the production company I, I run with a friend of mine, Korhuba. Uh, it's called the Comedy Embassy, and we do shows specifically in English. And so we get a lot of expats, we get a lot of tourists, and so me and most of the the regular comics that we have, um, we do talk about those things a fair amount um the tricky thing is when traveling comics come in yeah sometimes they're you know they've they might have only just learned about the the you know the sex and the drugs and all that stuff um and their observations on it are not always the most uh new and original um so it's not necessarily that we mind those stereotypes because we understand that that's what people think of our country. Honestly, considering how small we are, the fact that anyone thinks of us at all is amazing. Um, so yeah, we don't really mind. But like I said, yeah, some people just go like, have you ever noticed there's so many bikes? And everyone's like, yeah, yeah, that's it. Is, is that all you got? But but if, if someone's listening now, like, what, son, I want to fucking go into all and I don't want to just go through the stereotypical shit. I want to find out what is the real commodity of like holland uh, what's a unique and special dutch dish and what's a unique thing about amsterdam that you got people in amsterdam are very aware of about dutch people and the way it works but for people back home like what's what's something that people should experience and understand about holland that that isn't obvious wow that's a, that's a big question right there well um because the whole sex and drugs thing, look, if you're coming over to Amsterdam and it's not legal in your country, perfectly, perfectly legit to go indulge in all of that. I, 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 it, I very often, uh, when I talk to tourists and they ask me like, well, if there's one thing I should do, what is it? And I go, mushrooms, because um, I mean it, they're amazing, go do that. Uh, but that is, yeah, that's obviously uh, uh, not, not the most unexpected answer perhaps. Um, well, the one thing I really appreciate about my country is, um, and our culture, uh, is just the complete freedom of expression that there is, um, which is not necessarily like the kind of um, acceptance and tolerance that you would find in places like San Francisco where they celebrate their differences. In the Netherlands, it's more, uh, it's more an indifference more than anything else. As in like, I don't care what you do sex, drugs, whoever you fuck, whatever goes in your body or whoever, <laughs> do not care, um, which is uh, healthy, it seems to me. Um, and then also we have a, <coughs> sorry, you can call it a tall poppy syndrome, I suppose, but we do have a, a healthy disdain for success and, um, uh, you know, you don't, you don't see a lot of Ferraris and Bugattis driving around Amsterdam or the Netherlands in general. Um, because instead of people going like, oh, look at that guy, he must be rich and successful. Most Dutch people would go, fuck that, oh, with your Ferrari, well <laughs> done. Like, I, and I like that. I, I do like that about my people. Oh, so you don't show off. And it's, what, what, what prompts to like, not bothered about what's it called everyone else is doing? Because in, in, the, in the UK, there's so much infighting about different things, about things that are probably oh, that person does something weird or whatever. And a lot, a lot of times, sometimes I think that who gives a shit as long as they're not bothering you, who gives a fuck what they do? Yeah, yeah. I mean, in recent years, I mean, we're not 
sadly uh, immune to culture wars. And so there's been there's been there's been a, a number of those over the last couple of years. I mean, one thing that not everybody knows about the Netherlands, fortunately, is we have this holiday tradition. Um, I don't know if stop me if you've heard anything about this. I don't even know why I'm volunteering this information. It does not cast us in a good light. But um, so on December 5th, we have a holiday called St. Nicholas Day. It's roughly what the American Santa Claus is based on. And um, there's a couple of aesthetic differences. So this guy's a bishop and he, and he, you know, he's got a gold staff and all that stuff. And the elves are not elves. Uh, in the Dutch tradition, they are a character by the name of Zwarte Piet, Black Piet. <laughs> if you're starting to feel uncomfortable, you're right. Because um, we didn't traditionally have a lot of black people in the Netherlands, and so those traditionally are played by white people in blackface. Oh, yeah. Oh, <laughs> so, shit. Because we have this, we have this, you know, reputation of being very tolerant and and and, and progressive and all of that. I don't think that's necessarily untrue, um, but we can be surprisingly backwards in certain regards. Okay. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And but you see, in America, you watch a lot of Americas, and in the UK, sometimes comedy it feels like comedy is supposed to be, uh, I don't know, some sort of talk about honest things that are fucked up in society. How has sort of situations like that sort of shaped the Dutch comedy style? I mean, how and how. One question on top of that, how is that different to like English or American comics that pop round to Comedy Compass? Um, well, it's interesting. One thing that I've noticed that I like about the Dutch comedy scene or Dutch comedy audiences um, is it's, it's pretty hard to shock a Dutch crowd, so especially when it comes to anything sex related. You know, us, us continentals, we have a bit of a bit of a reputation and it's not entirely undeserved so you know we've got traveling comics sometimes that uh, come in with a bit and and it's supposed to like you know gross the audience out and the audience is just sitting there like yeah they had anal sex okay next <laughs> <laughs> like that doesn't really shock anyone over here which i like um and when it comes to you know you have a lot of young comics that go like oh i'm gonna I'm gonna do a joke about Anne Frank or the Holocaust or something like that. Um, that's actually a little hacky. Like, like all of those have kind of been done. Um, I have two of them myself, but um, yeah, it's it's not the most original topic necessarily. So in that sense, people are kind of hard to shock. Although when it comes to bizarrely enough, when it comes to our colonial history, that's something we've only very recently started talking about in this country in a very honest, open way. And so any jokes referring to our, you know, our history of slavery, for example, um, can, can sometimes make the crowd a little un, uneasy. Hmm. Uh, like they don't, they're not quite sure if they're allowed to laugh at that. Is, is it, I did a bit of research on this and at the highest sort of English to like in, fluent English speakers, a sort of Scandinavia and Holland. And like one of the things I'm very intrigued is, and I'm very jealous of, because when I went over there, like their English was amazing. It was even better than some of the people I know back home. And like, where does that come from? Like you guys, like, it, like it's like Muhammad Ali says, like in some parts of Africa that they can speak English, French, and all these other languages. And here they can barely speak English. How have you guys managed to be so fluent in English, get our humor as well as your own thing? And like, yeah, how have you achieved that? And like in English, we can't even speak English at times. <laughs> well, it's definitely not everyone in our scene um, is as fluent in English. Some performers actually kind of make that work to their advantage as well, um, especially when they they travel outside of the Netherlands, like people are just kind of intrigued by their accent and they kind of make that work. Um, not everyone's comedy as is as language based. I do really like wordplay a lot myself. For me, it's just always kind of been a hobby and um, I love incorporating like new expressions or something uh, into my act, if it makes sense at least. 
Um, it's also sometimes gotten me in trouble in the past because the really clever wordplay sometimes doesn't quite land with our audience because most of the people in our crowd, uh, English is their second language. Um, I did a couple of gigs in London right before the pandemic and there it was just like, oh my God, they get everything over here. Like it was, that was very, very nice. Not just obviously because of English proficiency, but also like British comedy, comedy audiences are so much more sophisticated, I feel. I just, that's not to put our own audience down, but you know, it's not uncommon for us to have a couple of people in the room who've never been to stand-up comedy in their lives. Um, I feel like in London, that's quite unlikely, you know? Does Is that answer your question? Because I do feel, <laughs> I would give you very broad answers and by the end I'm like, not quite sure what he asked. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, so, how do we as the Dutch, sorry, that was your question, I believe. How do we as the Dutch, why do we as a people speak uh, such good English? Was that yeah. your question? Thank you, sorry. Um, yeah, well, it's at the, the art history plays a really big part in that. Um, we've always been this really small country that, like the only reason we survived as a country and weren't taken in like Germany or France more than we were, um, was because we go we 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 always played the diplomacy card very very well. We're always involved in international trade. That was very very important for us. And so, you know, there hasn't the Netherlands is mercifully kind of um, free or like freer at least than some other countries of this whole like oh our language is the best language and everyone should just learn this. Um, because we understand that we're a very small country. And aside from the north of Belgium and Suriname in South America, nobody speaks Dutch. Um, and so we've never felt like learning other languages was beneath us or, you know, like our language is the best and everyone should just conform to us. Like we just seem to understand innately that that's not gonna happen. Um, and uh, yeah, for a lot of young people, at least, I want to say it's definitely exposure to pop culture. It's not uncommon in, in, in the Netherlands to see an ad that's, you know, aimed at Dutch people pretty much exclusively that will still be in English. The slogan will be in English because uh, it just sounds cooler to Dutch people. No. Yeah. Oh, okay. And but it's it's. Is, is it really regimented like people in school that they, they're really forced to learn another language alongside Dutch? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, we have to learn three languages in school. Um, Dutch and English are mandatory. And then the third one's basically up to you. So there would, a lot of the times that would be German, French, maybe Spanish. I think there's a handful of schools now that do Mandarin. But uh, oh. so yeah, basically three. Whoa. How do you not? How do you, how do you not forget all of it? <laughs> well, when it comes to German, I've forgotten most of that because uh, I took German in school and I am not great at it. Um, the one thing that I really like about languages that's really um, intriguing to me is how much of how you see the world is really shaped by language. Um, it's one of the reasons I think I took to English as, as, as much as I did, because I literally feel, and I've talked to a lot of bilingual people who have this, but in English, I feel like a slightly different person because I have just different associations with English words than I do with the Dutch words, even though they basically mean the same thing. Um, and yeah, I remember years ago, I was backpacking around, um, Latin America and I was learning a lot of Spanish because you kind of have to over there. And just so much of my high school French, I took two years of French and then I ditched it as soon as I could. I hated it, I was really, really bad at it. And this would have been maybe 15 or 20 years later, I was learning Spanish and I kept thinking like, oh, that's the same in French. And just surprised by like, wow, where, is I, where was I keeping all this French knowledge this whole time? It's bizarre. So that part of it is is going to be in there anyway and it's you're saying that okay i think a lot yeah i think a lot of it kind of goes dormant a little bit um when it comes to languages at least I, it might be true for a lot of a lot of different information i don't know but when it comes to language yeah there's so much of it you know i've 
uh, I mean, people who are bilingual, even if they don't speak the second language too well, I think a lot of people have this experience where they have to get started a little bit, like, oh, I haven't spoken German in a while. And then it's, you know, they're really, really rusty. And then by the time, especially if they're, they've had a couple of beers, then suddenly you're fine. So it's all, it's all back there. Um, that's interesting. So is it a bit like Arnold Schwarzenegger <laughs> where he says, I, I need to pronounce, that's the one word that I need to pronounce different. I got in trouble in America because they kept on saying that I was saying another word in it. But anyway, um, <laughs> they, they said um, with him, he says, you've got to find what your motivation is. So if you want to work at, it could be just to promote, to, to um, impress girls or whatever. And so you're saying with the language, it's sort of one of the reasons why you became fluent is because you really have a big love for English because of all the sure. things you watched. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I mean, I have friends of mine who, you know, are really onto anime and they speak, as far as I can tell, decent Japanese. They've just picked it up from, from movies, you know, and uh, I mean, it was Hollywood. So, yeah. With, so in the Dutch comedy scene or should i say the holland comedy scene or what would be the right way to say dutch is fine but we don't mind either way the dutch comedy scene is there is it like where it is in germany where there's a big english speaking scene and there's a big dutch speaking scene and they yeah yeah for sure um yeah the dutch scene is still bigger than the english scene although the english one is growing all the time um there's quite a lot of differences between the two because the Dutch one is older. Um, I feel like it's a little bit more male dominated. It's, there's a lot more uh, old feuds and scores to settle and stuff where, you know, you try to book one guy for one night. It was like, oh no, you can't put that guy on that night because these two have history. Um, well, he's still there. What did I do? Oh, God damn it. What the hell? Oh, you can still hear me? <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, my screen went away. So I'm like, oh, man, what did I do this time? Uh, but with, with, Sorry. <laughs> with, so I, I, tr I tried to. Oh, there you are. Sorry, I found you. <laughs> Sorry about that. So I've seen with a. Is there any sort of. With, is there any that frequently do both the English and the Dutch speaking scene? And is it For like sure. in the UK where you get a few big names that pop by into the small clubs to test material? And do you get a lot of that going on? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, there's quite a lot of overlap. I started off doing both. Um, or technically, I started off doing dutch and then as soon as i could do english anywhere i was i, I tried to get as many gigs of those as i could uh, and then eventually i just realized i like english way more but there's loads of people who do both um and just regularly and there's, then there's also like you said there's there's sometimes there's big acts that rarely perform in english but they've been booked to do some international thing and then they give us a, us a call and they're like hey do you have a couple of dates for me because i I want to try some stuff out because the worst the worst thing you can do and a lot of comedians have learned this lesson is go like oh well i usually do this in this language but for this one gig i'll just translate it in my head as i go on stage that is a terrible idea it uh, it rarely works well can i ask any names who have been done <laughs> oh god no um no, I couldn't really name anyone right now um, without getting in trouble. No, <laughs> no, one, no one really springs to mind. Yeah, it's is is the are the audiences different in the you, you, ah, the audiences are a bit different, but is the humour slightly different in in when you're performing in Dutch? Yeah, to do the joke, if you if, if I don't know if you did a not not joke. In English, how would that translate to Dutch, and how would you have to, how would you have to adjust your jokes if you well, wanted to do both? Well, that's the thing. I've, I've seen people, and I've, I think I might have done this once or twice myself, but I've definitely seen people on stage, you know, get to the end of their joke 
or like approaching the punchline and then realizing, oh, this is a pun and this does not work in English. This works in Dutch. It does not work in English. It doesn't make any sense. Um, so obviously when it comes to that kind of stuff, that's difficult. Um, seeing as even at our English spoken shows, we tend to have quite a lot of Dutch people. I don't think there's necessarily a huge difference in sense of humor um, between those groups, I wouldn't say. I mean, one thing that really makes it not to get too in the weeds when it comes to, you know, languages, but uh, when I was doing both, I really struggled. I've struggled a little bit with Dutch because I was all the comedians that I loved and I, I listened to all the time were British, were Irish, were American, were Australian. And so I tended to kind of think in those terms. And so very often I would think of a joke in English and then have to translate that into Dutch. Now, as long as it's not a pun, that mostly works. But like I said, not to get too in the weeds, but one thing that's really different about Dutch is that we, how do I explain this without getting too English teacher on you? But basically when we have two verbs in a sentence, we put the second verb all the way at the end of the sentence. So oh. people have kind of compared it to the way Yoda speaks. Ah. Um, yeah. So, what that means is that a lot of the times you want to end a joke on the strongest, funniest word, uh, which a lot of the times is a noun or sometimes an adjective. Um, but because a lot of Dutch sentences end in a verb, that's not all. It's like sometimes you have to make really unnatural sentences just to punch where you want to punch. Does that make any sense? Yeah. Okay. The, the punchline is at a different point than it is in English. Yeah, basically. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, if if there's any, if 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 my name is um, Van Nistelrooy, and <laughs> I want to try and do comedy in Dutch, and if I want to do it in English, who where are the main places to go, and how would I go about doing it? Oh, well, <clears throat> so the English spoken scene, like I said, is a bit smaller, uh, and especially in terms of where gigs happen. Uh, because even though I would say at least half of the crowd that will show up will still be Dutch, you do really want to be ideally in a place where there's a lot of expats, preferably tourists as well. So that mostly the English spoken scene is, is a lot of it is centered around Amsterdam. Amsterdam really is the focal point. Uh, but then there's quite a lot going on in Rotterdam, uh, Utrecht. Um, there's a place called Wageningen, which is not a big city, but there's a really big international university there. So there's international uh, students. Uh, what am I leaving? Uh, the Hague is very good. There's a lot of diplomats over there. So yeah, the area that which in, in the Netherlands we refer to as the Randstad, which is this cluster of really big cities out west mostly. And then when it comes to the Dutch scene, I mean, that could really be anywhere. Um, there's, especially if you're starting on Dutch, I, I very much recommend getting in touch with uh, an outfit called AOT Events. Uh, AOT, always on top events. And because the guy who runs that um, was he, instrumental when I was starting out in, uh, in, in, in giving me spots, because he organizes I think probably anywhere from six to 12 shows a week um, all around the country. And that will literally be from like big cities to very small towns you've never heard of. So, oh. Yeah. Yeah, he's great. And he's very, very open to new talent as well. So he would always just post like, hey, here's a list of gigs that I have next month. Who wants to do what? And uh, yeah, that was a great way in. So you, with your diverse background, so you've been like a tour guide, you've worked in radio um, and you've worked, you know, you do run comedy shows and you do stand up as well. But one thing I want to say, have you seen the film Slumdog Millionaire? I have, yes. You see how he was answered a lot of questions that he knew the answer to because of his life experience. How has that sort of influenced the way you are now 
with those like how and your 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 character and and your comedy wow yeah that's something to think about um i mean all of those experiences that we sort of emailed about a little bit before the um before the recording of the show some of the experiences that i mentioned um i think all of them have definitely had a big impact on me um living in thailand for sure changed my life um even working at the amsterdam dungeon which i only did for 18 months that was the first time like i had done nothing but like office admin jobs up to that point uh call center stuff um so working for the dungeon like it didn't pay that well and i didn't do it that long and i felt weird about calling myself an actor even though you know on, on my contract that's what it said um but it was the first time i got paid to perform like i'd done a lot of improv before that and i'd always even in school i'd done plays and all that stuff but that was the first time i was like i'm a professional performer and i've kind of kept being that ever since um okay yeah. and it's do you, when you're doing all these different things that one of the guys i've had on a podcast uh ravi jago pal he f works in different industries but his main aim is digital marketing like he does email marketing he does all like podcasting but he describes himself as a digital marketer and he says once you find your niche he treats it like drilling oil once you found it, you go deeper, run and yeah. spread it in different places. Is that with you doing all these different things? Do you feel that? And you mentioned it before the podcast. Do you feel that you're going to have to cut back on a lot of things and really try and you're in a metaphysical. I'm sounding like Einstein, like a <laughs> philosopher here, but do you feel that you're going to have a little think about it all and find out where, where it all fits into what you want to do at the end and what's more important? Yeah, for sure. Um, it's interesting really, because I used to look at my resume and think like, Oh, good deal. Like it's a nightmare for any prospective employer because it seems like it's all over the place. Like I did so many different things. Um, but then I realized a couple of years ago, like, no, there's kind of a through line. It was me basically narrowing down more and more and more what I wanted to do and what I was good at and what I felt comfortable doing. And yeah, like I said, a lot of that has been performance based. Um, you know, not all of it's fucking Shakespeare. I, I spent a couple of months earlier this year working with the Heineken experience, just basically talking up Heineken to tourists. Um, and that's fine, because honestly, any any place where I get to, you know, meet a lot of people, speak a lot of English, um, perform, make people laugh every now and then, I'm, I'm pretty comfortable at. But I think what you're referring to as well is that, yeah, I'm kind of at a crossroads a little bit right now where I have so many different projects going on all at the same time that it is really time to narrow that down. I um do you know do you know Rialina with the comedian? Oh yeah, I know. <laughs> I mean she's she's incredible. Her story's incredible. Like right. I used to gig with her a lot and she's been going for maybe twenty years or something. Yeah. Like yeah, she's yeah. really inspirational, mate. Like the struggle she's gone through and now she's finally gotten the Apollo. I mean yeah. and now she's had a big break. She's a good example of like committing to comedy, working your ass off and finally getting the award. And yeah, yeah. I've got nothing but good things to say about what she's done. But she is she very, very hard. Yeah, no, for sure. But it's, so we were lucky enough that, especially now that she's she's breaking as big as she is, finally, um, her parents live in the Netherlands, and so she comes over here fairly frequently and performs at the comedy embassy at the the, the shows that we that we produce, um, which has just always been a blast. And we we've really connected a lot over the last couple of years, and she's really. Uh, she's really given me some, some amazing advice over, um, you know, when it, whenever she's over, basically. And one thing she really, really told me is like, you gotta, and this, you know, it's not, it's not a line she came up with, but she really did. She, she stressed like you got to work smarter, not harder yeah. because, and that's really something that I'm only really figuring out in the last couple of weeks or so that 
I thought I thought a work life balance was all about like doing as much as you can without burning out. Uh, that's how I've lived my life for the last couple of years. Uh, and I've gotten close a couple of times. And now I realize like, no, life really should be its own little chapter that is as important um, as, as work, even though comedy doesn't necessarily always feel like work. But yeah, especially now that I'm a dad, I really try to be a lot more conscious about making time for stuff like that, uh, for spending time with my kid, with my wife, my all of that sure yeah she is right about that i mean it yeah it's it's funny isn't it it's she's yeah she she what what do you think made her say that in regards to the uh probably me complaining about how busy <laughs> i was and um yeah i mean i've struggled a little bit since the i think a, a lot of comedians struggled during the pandemic um and I, I was no exception. First lockdown was actually, I, again, I was on the verge of a burnout. And so the first lockdown was actually kind of perfect for me. Not as, not as great for the rest of the planet, I do realize. But for me personally, um, yeah, that's kind of exactly what I needed. <laughs> um, I did a lot of writing. I wrote a, a pilot uh, for a sitcom, more, more as an exercise than anything else. But it was, yeah, really taught me a lot. And so that was kind of great. And then as the lockdowns and pandemic and all of that wore on, like by the end, I wasn't really producing anything anymore. And very few people I talked to, um, yeah, had a different story. They were all like, yeah, there's just no input. We're just sitting here at home. There's nothing, there's nothing to write about, it seems. And then of course, you know, Bo Burnham brings out inside and yeah. which puts us all to shame. <laughs> um, so yeah, I, and I, I've struggled a little bit since the pandemic, sort of getting back into the rhythm of things. Um, I feel like I, uh, it feels a little post-traumatic, st stressy almost, where I'm just kind of burying myself in work because I, on some level, I'm convinced that if I have enough stuff going on, then if there is a lock in the next, next lockdown, I won't be just completely empty-handed again. Hmm. Uh, but that has not necessarily been that healthy is what I'm now learning. Yeah. It, it's, it's, yeah, sometimes it is a bit of an annoying thing, but yeah, it, it, it's, it is true. It's very true. Well, from what I've seen, especially with comedians, the ones that have gotten ahead, it's, it's definitely more the ones that work smarter rather than harder. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, over lockdown also because there was there were no gigs like so i was like oh well maybe i'll i'll, I'll, I'll post daily one-liners i'll start doing that or and then i started making sketches every week and then you know i was writing a sitcom and i was doing all these other things that were comedy related but weren't really stand up and it got a little too i got a little too diffuse there at one point where i was like let's just focus on the one thing that i really love to do and try to get better at that now, one of the things I want to talk of, you mentioned that you love sketches. What is it that you love about doing comedy sketches and how is it different to stand up? Well, the, what I love about sketches is they're, they're their own little self-contained worlds where, I'm, I mean, I've always been a massive uh, sci-fi and fantasy fan. So I've always been attracted to like different worlds. And what I love about a sketch is they can be a three minute look into a completely different universe where different rules apply and logic is sometimes absent. Um, you know, I always loved The Simpsons. That was one of the things that really inspired the whole English thing. Um, and the episodes that I sometimes loved the most were the Treehouse of Horror uh, episodes, the Halloween episodes. Uh, because there it was always three very short little stories and anything goes as in like the whole family can get murdered like everything resets by the end it do, nothing matters in that in those little stories and that's what I love about sketches like there's nothing's off limit anything can happen hmm. but in stand up not always <laughs> um well, it's funny when I was when I was um, when I was working with I was working with this outfit called uh, Infinite Monkey Theory, 
and we uh, we were producing weekly sketches, um, and and I was writing a lot at the at the time. I was writing a lot of sketches, a lot of stand up as well. And then it got really interesting because sometimes you would come up with a joke or you'd come up with something funny, an observation, a thought, and you know I would start writing a bit of stand up and then realize this isn't stand up. This is a sketch, or sometimes the other way around where the idea kind of tells you what it is. It's like that uh, Michelangelo quote, I think it's Michelangelo, where he, was, uh, where, he um, where he compares making a statue to like, well, the statue's already in the marble. All I have to do is just cut away the, the excess bit of marble around it. Um, sometimes writing really does feel like that when, when you get done, where you're like, well, this was always supposed to be this way. Hmm. Uh, I don't think that's necessarily true, but it definitely feels that way sometimes. Sure. Now, <clears throat> this is going to be something that I'm going to, I'm going to show you a little image and I want to see what you think of it. Okay. okay. Be very short. Um, that worries nothing odd. <laughs> um, it's called, okay, there's a form. Comedy quotes. So, see I'm gonna pick um... all right I'm sure I'm trying not to react too much for your listeners just to not to spoil the surprise but there's a specific comedian who uh who you're googling right now as we speak <laughs> this is riveting radio what we're doing right now <laughs> <laughs> okay Let's look at this. So there's a big. Oh, okay. You were looking for Bill Burr first. Turns out it wasn't Bill Burr. What do you think? What do you think of this this bit here? Oh, okay. So the quote's by George Carlin, and the quote is: "Some people see things, and uh, some some people see things that are, and ask why." Some people dream of things that never were and ask why not. Some people have to go to go to work and don't have time for all that shit. Uh, yeah, <laughs> very true. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's you know, traditionally why writers like pre twentieth century were all aristocrats mostly because everyone else was working sixty hours a week in a factory. And, uh, and yeah, you literally don't have time for that shit. Um, yeah, it's funny. With stand-up, they often, a lot of American stand-ups, they, they sometimes say try and they do it as like you learn a lesson about life and this and that. And I mean, my favorite comedian for that is probably Patrice O'Neill. Um, but the thing is, how much would you say stand-up or comedy resembles life oh dear um well so so i started out in well like i said i, I did plays in, in in high school and all that but i i feel like my i started out in comedy uh by doing improv for for years and years and years we weren't calling it comedy but you know we were making people laugh so i guess that counts and improv has definitely changed my life massively because when it comes to like how improv is like um, life, it's like, well, all of life is improvised. And so training yourself, and I haven't done it now in a long time. Like whenever I do get on stage to do improv, I'm always very disappointed in myself because it really is a muscle you need to train. But, um, but yeah, training yourself to sort of let go of whatever plans you may have had um, or intentions you had previously and just accepting what's in front of you and going like, oh, well, now this thing has happened. What can come after that? How can I yes and that um, is, is, is a, a massive life skill to just learn to accept things. Like there's this quote, um, let go or be dragged. I really, really like that. Um, because letting go is definitely my biggest challenge in life, just generally. Um, and so improv really, really helped with that. But how is comedy like life? Um, 
Well, I mean, I do believe that ultimately life is meaningless. I'm not a religious guy. Um, I don't necessarily see that as a negative thing, though. Um, the fact that life is meaningless means that you can assign your own meaning to things. Um, if there is no God, then essentially you are it. Um, and so I like, yeah, I like looking at it that way quite a lot. And so because we attach so much meaning to so many things, um, not that all of that is worthless necessarily, um, it can be really, really funny to just, uh, the way George Carlin so expertly did, go like, why, why do we do this thing? Why, how did this become a thing? Um, because people do sometimes forget what, and religion is an ex a, 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 you know, great example of this. Like we tend to hang on to the rituals and the symbols and forget what they were actually symbols for. So the symbols become more important than the things they symbolize. And that is just ripe for ridicule. <laughs> hmm. Focusing on, yeah, okay. So you're saying people should focus on the message rather than what the actual object is? Yeah, I mean, it's it's funny because I've always been, um, you know, I've always had this love of language. I think that's, that is fair to say. Um, and yet at the same time in recent years, I've tried to, I've at least become really intrigued by the notion that, uh, as I said before, language really um, shapes the way you look at the world. Um, there are, uh, you know, Thailand has this really rich monastic tradition and they have these, and in most monastic traditions around the world, so like Christian friars and Buddhist monks and they all, a lot of them have this uh, habit or have a, a, a practice of taking vows of silence. Now, I always thought that a vow, a vow of silence was some kind of like uh, exercise in discipline or sort of kind of proving to yourself or to the world or to God or who knows that you can do it. Uh, but apparently what it's all about, I've been told recently, is by not speaking for a very long time, you stop thinking of the world in words. And while I love words and I love language, they are every language at the end of the day is limited um, because there are always things that we cannot really put into words, feelings, um, experiences, whatever. Um, and so by letting go of those words and um, sort of intuitively thinking about them and, and dealing with them, um, you can come to certain, apparently come to certain, uh, yeah, revelations and, and, and change the way, you, change your outlook just generally. This has gotten very esoteric. I was not expecting it to go this way. <laughs> oh, okay. What do you mean esoteric? Uh, it's, it's it's all gotten pretty hippie-ish. Like, <laughs> uh, like, I'm not on mushrooms right now, but uh, but this is definitely the kind of stuff I talk about. Actually, that's not true. When I'm on mushrooms, I can't form sentences. Um, <laughs> uh, so, mm -hmm. what... What is... So, there's, there's many comedians out here, and there's, there's comedians that you know, some that listen to the podcast. If there is any piece of advice you could give a new comic starting out that isn't obvious, like gig more, write more, um, treat comedy like it's lifelong partner where you change and you keep it exciting. What, or like, remember that comedy, you know, a lot of comedians and entertainers stop thinking that sometimes you trust them too easy. And you've got to understand a lot of people are for their own self-interest. What's something that's completely different to what I've said that you'd like to offer comics, like a piece of advice? Well, I would say to people starting out, was that, that was part of your question, right? People who are just starting out new, new comics yeah. as well. Um, this isn't as profound as some of the things you just said, but, but I've seen a lot of very young comics go like, uh, oh, well, no, none, of the, none, none of the comedians in my scene seem to seem to have any material on rape. Great, that's gonna be my niche. Yeah. I'm gonna do a bunch of rape jokes, and then they find out very, very quickly why uh, very few people do material on rape because it's very, very difficult to do. Um, 
not to not necessarily that you can't do it. Um, it's just a it's a it's a tightrope act. And so I think there's a lot of young comics that overreach that that go like I'm gonna talk about the darkest, most disturbing shit. <laughs> and I'm like, great if you can make that work, go with God. But um, but if you're new to comedy, I very much doubt that you can do that in a way where the audience doesn't immediately take a dislike to you. Um, so that would be one. Uh, also, I mean, so many people ask like, oh my God, you do stand up, isn't that terrifying? And I always tell them like, at first, yeah. Um, there were multiple moments in my first year where I was like, I think I should stop doing this. I think the universe is trying to tell me something. That was terrible. Um, so there, every, I think, I mean, I hope every comedian uh, has experiences like that at first. Um, and whether or not you're uh, willing to push through that and expose yourself to, you know, potentially more pain down the line, um, you know, only time will tell. But, but so my, I guess my, my advice would be like, if you do have a terrible, terrible gig um, and you haven't been doing it that long, the, there's gonna be more gigs. Like, don't, don't take it too seriously. Don't make it mean anything more than it really does. Okay. Yeah. And for anyone that's listening now, how do they find out about you, Tim? Um, like, how can they find out more about me? I don't yeah, think they can, like... I don't, I'm not sure if they can find out more about me than the stuff we've talked about here. Um, <laughs> there's, there's people I work with that probably don't know this much about me. Um, well, uh, the comedy embassy, that's, that's my business. And so if you're ever in Amsterdam, come to one of our shows, comedyembassy.com. You can find all of them. We have four, four shows a week. And uh, I like to think that we put on the best international English spoken uh, shows in the Netherlands um, with amazing acts. So there's that. If you speak Dutch, uh, there is a podcast that I do called Goeie Ouwe. Hence, hence, you can tell how Dutch it is just by the name, Goeie Ouwe. Um, and that's a, a Dutch history slash comedy podcast, but it's only in Dutch. And what else? As for sketches that I did in the past, you can find them on my YouTube channel um, or Infinite Monkey Theory. I think that's, I think, I don't, I don't, I don't think that I have anything more to plug right now. All right. Well, if you have any more, let me know. Uh, guys, I hope you've enjoyed Tim. Um, make sure that if you like this episode, share it. Uh, give us a five-star view on Amazon or iTunes. Uh, and most importantly, subscribe for more scintillating, adventurous, swashbuckling, uh, fun, and invigorating episodes.